This is 23 through 28. This will bring us to the end of Hebrews chapter 9. This is the word of God. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as high priest enters, in, enters the holy place every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after comes judgment... So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. History and the nature of time uh, is something that has long fascinated uh, many people. And many observations about the nature of time and history uh, have been made. There have been many belief systems uh, set up around what uh, the nature of these things are in regards to man. And so there are some who will say that your life, your soul, is uh, caught in an endless loop. When you die, you will be reincarnated uh, into another person or another object, uh, things like Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, but also uh, Greek thinkers like Socrates and Plato uh, believe this, that the human soul endured, uh, but it was just caught in this endless loop. Others have developed a circular view of history, that nothing uh, new in time happens, that it's a wheel, and it continues to go over and over again. Nothing that happens then has any more importance than anything else that has ever happened because it's a wheel. And just as your car goes down the road, the top of the wheel eventually comes to the bottom and it goes back again. And it's a circle. I think you can learn a lot about someone uh, if you ask them if they care about history at all, what do you see as those significant moments in history? And, and certainly there have been, if you look at the history of the world, there are certainly significant moments. You think about the advent of the printing press. That was significant. Uh, you think about the fall of Rome. That was significant. You think about the American Revolution. That was significant. But on the heels of Rome, on the heels of this Greek philosophy of a circular history, along came a man by the name of Augustine. And he wrote a work called City of God. And Augustine in City of God noted that there was one event in history that in its very nature could not be repeated. 
the death of the Son of God for the forgiveness of sins. And from this, Augustine extrapolated, he developed a linear view of history, that history has a beginning and an end, and that it has a decisive turning point. I believe this is also what the writer in our text shows us today, that there is a pivotal moment in history, the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And as we consider that, we'll see three things. A holy sacrifice, a sufficient sacrifice, and an eternal sacrifice. A holy sacrifice, a sufficient sacrifice, and an eternal sacrifice. Now, you may be tempted as we begin here again to go, well, Daniel, history may not be circular, but certainly your sermons are, because I feel like we continue to talk about the temple, and we continue to talk about Christ's blood, and it, and, and it does. He continues here, and in fact, he's going to keep driving in this point, really, until we get chapter 11, so we're not quite away from it yet. And in chapter 11, he's going to turn, okay, now that all this is true, now that we have built this foundation of what Christ has done, now how are you to live? And he begins to point us to these heroes of the faith and about what faith is. Uh, But the writer of Hebrews is really trying to drive home a point to his readers and and be reminded of who his readers are. Jewish Christians who are tempted to leave Christianity and return to Judaism. And as we've gone through this, we reminded who we are. Uh, Christians in a world that might be tempted to leave Christianity because what the world offers is easier. And in verse 23 and 28, as we can, 23 through 28, as we can continue to consider the death and resurrection of, of Jesus Christ, he again turns to the temple and what Jesus has done. Uh, He says here in verse 23, thus it was necessary for the copies of heavenly things to be purified with these rites. And the rites that he's talking about is, as we saw last week, where Moses would take the hyssop branch and the blood and he would sprinkle it on the people and everything. He says it was necessary for these copies to have this done because the copies were insufficient in themselves. The holy temple, or or excuse me, the the earthly temple is what I meant to say. The earthly temple was not sufficient in and of itself, but Jesus has come and he is the better sacrifice. Jesus who died on our behalf, or, or Jesus who died to bear our sins, who was raised from the dead by the Father and ascended into heaven. Everything, as we've seen in the Old Testament, we're not, or Old Testament temple, and we're not going to go through and look at them again, but they were all shadows, he says here. They were shadows. They were copies of the heavenly things. They pointed to a, a heaven, heavenly truth, but they were not the truth itself. And we've seen some of the things, the showbread that the, the, the priest would eat. And Jesus, I am the bread of life. It was a shadow, a copy of a greater truth. The lamp that shined forth the light. Jesus, who is the light. They were copies 
of heavenly things. And as copies, they needed and required purification. But Jesus did not. And in fact, Jesus and his sacrifice in all ways was different. He didn't enter into an earthly temple. Uh, It tells us in verse 24, he entered where? Into a heavenly temple. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of true things, but into heaven itself. He points us to the ascension of Jesus. He now appears in the presence of God on our behalf. God, or Jesus, is now present before God, representing us. And we needed this. We needed this mediation, as we have seen. We cannot go into God's presence on our own merit. We are marred by sin. We stand in judgment before God, before his throne. We are in jeopardy of eternal damnation. In fact, the earthly temple really showed us what sinners were to be denied. We were denied the bread of life. We were denied the light of God. We were denied his very presence. Without the blood of Jesus, we could not be tolerated. But now, but now we are no longer condemned. We are redeemed. This is what Jesus has done for us. He has redeemed us so that our presence is not only tolerated, but we are called to come into the presence. We have fellowship with Christ. All of this, Everything that we have been going through over over the past uh, many months points to this. When Jesus came, it was a turning point in history. It was a turning point in history. Christ appeared once for all, as it says here, at the end of the age. At the end of the ages, he appeared once for all. It's the climax of all redemptive history. Everything changed forever. And it's this wonderful, beautiful thing that we have to understand that in history, Christ came and it made all the difference That we stood in judgment before a holy God that there was nothing that we could do about it. And Christ changed everything. You may have heard this before and I don't know who originated it. And it's very, I will tell you before I say it, it's cheesy. It's okay, cheesy is okay sometimes. Uh, Some have said this. Well, history is just his story, right? Talking about Christ. 
It's cheesy. I acknowledge it. But it also makes a valuable point, doesn't it? That all of history is about Jesus. Just as everything in the Old Testament was focused around life in the temple, so now everything for us is focused around Christ as our head. He came for a reason. We know he is in control. We know that he is sufficient to meet all our needs. He has done it all. I love that what it says here, it's the title of our sermon. Once for all, at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus did not come to be repeatedly crucified. He did not come to repeatedly offer himself up as the forgiveness of sins. He came once to pay that debt. His sacrifice, this is our second point, was sufficient. The reality is this, there's a relationship between the redemptive history that we find in Jesus and our own personal histories. Jesus puts himself into our histories by his death on the cross. There are no multiplications of a person's life. There is no life, death, and repeat. There is life, death, and no other. After death comes judgment before God's holy throne. And this rules out, and and I haven't heard it much lately, but I'm sure it's still out there. There's a thread of evangelicalism, I won't call it Christianity, that says, well, it's it's basically a second chance theory. That after death, even if you haven't come to Christ, there'll be a second chance where you can say, oh yeah, okay. No. Verse 27, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. It is appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment. John in his gospel says this, I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. If you are apart from Christ, ahead of you is death. A death that just doesn't end with death. It's a death that leads to judgment. A judgment that sinners cannot stand. But Jesus, but Jesus has made provision for all that we need. For the believer, judgment becomes a door to everlasting life, a a portal to eternity as beloved children of God. Jesus' death is once for all an event that changed everything. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. He did everything that was necessary. And again, this means that we don't need multiple conversions. And again, something else has crept up in the church. We come and someone says, oh, I'm a Christian and I come to faith. And they, 
have a conversion and they sin and they go, oh, I'm going to come to faith again. And, and it's this misunderstanding of what Christ has done. The weak believer comes and he, and he comes to faith. And maybe, let's even call him a believer. And he, and he, but he sins. He places too much emphasis on his own decision and not the work of Christ. At times this even leaves people... Uh, around and ask people, how many times have you been baptized? One, two, three, four, five. It's a misunderstanding, I believe, of what baptism does, what the work of Christ is. When Jesus came, when you, you came to faith, it was total deliverance from all sins and its powers. It was total escape from our sinful nature. But it is only fully realized either when Christ comes again or when we die. The answer for the weak Christian who goes, may doubt their salvation, is not that you need to be saved again. Christ died for you once for all. The answer for the weak Christian is to be reminded of the fact that you are still a sinner. You're still someone who struggles in sin, but you have a savior who is sufficient to meet all your needs. This is the good news of the gospel. You're not saved by your faith. You're saved by Christ. You are not saved by your faith. You're saved by Christ. Christ who through his spirit produces faith in you. But it is not your deciding to believe your faith, what you have done that saves you. It's Christ's death on the cross that saves you. Christ entering into the heavenly temple and making sacrifice upon himself. Because he is in heaven, we know our sins are forgiven once for all. Because God's love for us is sure forever. We are the objects. We who are in Christ, we who have placed our trust in what he has done are the objects of that moment, that in time of redemptive history, Christ came and died for you. Ultimately to his own glory, but he died for you. We are the object. All of history was moving towards the cross. And on the cross, this focal moment of all of history, you were there. Not physically. But if you were in Christ, then you were there because your sins, your sins were upon him on the cross as he suffered the wrath of God. We are part of that history. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the God of creation, the God who created time, or the construct that we know is time. God was not sitting there before all eternity with a clock ticking away the seconds. 
God created the clock. He created time. The God of history and all that happens in it. He is your God. If you are in him, he is your God. And he loves you with such a great love that he sent his own son to die for you. And know that that son will come again and will bring you into his glory. So Christ, verse 28, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. We have a sacrifice that is eternal. What do I mean by that? It is eternal in that it has eternal significance for the believer. Again, we see here Christ doesn't come again to deal with sin. Why does Christ not have to come again to deal with sin? Because it's been dealt with. He's done it. He's done that work. He's accomplished sin. When Christ comes again, it'll be for something different. He has already borne the sins of many. He has already provided for us forgiveness and life. No, he comes to bring those who he has died for. To save those who are eagerly await or waiting for him. And the, and the save here is not save in the, in the I'm going to save you from your sin. Uh, no, it's for those who are waiting, those who already have forgiveness of sin, but also those who are still living in this life. When I say, or let's not say life, let's say living in this world of sin. He saves us. From this world of sin. John Owen, the Puritan writer, says this. Faith in the second coming of Christ is sufficient to support the souls of believers. And to give them satisfactory consolation in all difficulties, trials, and distress. Let me stop there. There's more to the quote, but let's just think about that. Faith in the second coming of Christ is sufficient to support the souls of believers. We need support. Because as we look at this world, as we look at this life, we see the sin that is still going on around us. We see the sin that we continue to struggle with. And in our sins, where are we to look? <coughs> Faith in the second coming provides for us consolation, as he says here, in all difficulties, trials, and distress. Why? Because we know that this world is not our world. We know that we are aliens. We are sojourners. So he goes on to say this. All true believers do live in a waiting Longing expectation of the coming of Christ. It is one of the most distinguishing characteristics of a sincere believer so to do. A second appearance of Christ, or excuse me, at the second appearance of Christ, there will be an end 
of the business about sin, both on his part and ours. Are you struggling in sin? Are you struggling in doubt? Are you struggling with the temptations of this world? Then brothers and sisters in Christ, remember Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. It reminds me, I love growing up, my dad would read to me the line which in the wardrobe. And part of the problems with, as uh, we go into line which in the wardrobe uh, with Narnia is, it's always winter, never spring. The white witch had cursed the land. It was always winter. But when Aslan came, what happened? Everything began to thaw. Spring had come. Christ is coming. Christ is coming. Yes, judgment is inevitable. It will come, but sin is not. Sin will not be with us forever. And the only thing that matters is where we stand before God. We must put our trust in him. And if we have done this, then there we find peace and joy. A peace and joy that produces faith. A longing waiting for his return. But as we wait, we do not wait idly. I think there can be a temptation as we look at this world to go, hey, this world is scary. I'm going to go lock myself in my house and wait for Jesus to come back. No, we do not wait idly. We must serve and worship him with all our lives, bearing witness to a lost and guilty world. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do you long for his return? Do you pray, Lord, come and come quickly? Are you living for eternity? And that's hard, isn't it? Living for eternity is hard when you're oftentimes just trying to get through the week. Parents, I've got to get my kids up and I've got to get them to school. I've got to get, make sure they're fed. I've got to make sure clothes are washed. And I've got to make sure uh, the house is clean. And I've got to make sure I got, I'm ready to go to work. And I've got to make sure this. I've got to make sure of that. And it's very easy to get caught up in the worries of tomorrow, doesn't it? We have to live with a mind on heaven. Is the whole of our lives reflecting our heavenly calling? Sadly, I think one of the, the things that has really hurt the modern church, go as far as to say the American church, we really have, our priorities have gotten so far out of whack. If you look at the Puritans, and I think that we can look at the Puritans and we can say a lot of negative things. I think they probably, in some ways, took a little th some things maybe just a little too far. But I think the reason they did that was because they had a mind for the things of God. 
So you look at the Puritans habit of, of, of the Sabbath and they set out the next day's meal ahead of time and they didn't clean it up till Monday. And you go, are they pushing it a little bit maybe? But do you understand their mindset? Their desire was for the things of God. And, and I wonder if that our, our mindset has been shifted so much that even though we may come here on Sunday and, and even though we may come here on Wednesday, our, our mind is not as focused and attuned on the things of God as it should be. Again, looking at the Sabbath, when we begin to say, well, can't my child play that organized sports game on Sunday? Can't I miss church to go spend the day on the lake? Can't I do this? Or and I'm not answering those questions for you. But what I'm saying is that, that when we begin to ask the question, what can we get away with? Our minds are not focused. We're not living for eternity. We're not with anticipation going, Jesus Christ, come back right now. For I want to be in your presence. I want eternity with you. We, we must with longing anticipation desire to stand before God. Knowing that we're not perfect in this life. But knowing that we can come boldly into his presence. Are our lives properly focused on the God of eternity who in time sent his son to die so that he might reconcile himself to us? Christ died once for all so that we can with longing anticipate his second coming because we're heirs, sons, and daughters of God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you have a Savior who has made sacrifice for you. He is perfectly sufficient to meet all your needs. Everything that the Old Testament failed to do, He did perfectly. He's made way for us. He's sufficient. He came and He did it once. He does not have to do it over. And over again. And he has brought you into the very presence of God with his presence in heaven. Let us come before him, we who are called children of the living God. Let us know that we are part of this wondrous history, that we are his church, his body, his bride. That everything that has happened and that will happen is moving towards his return, where we will be with the Lord for all eternity to the praise of his wondrous and glorious name. Is that your longing? Is that your hope? If so, come and live your life before him, focusing on him, focusing on eternity. And if you don't know this, come and know it. Know that apart from him, there is only death. There is only 
judgment. But in him there is forgiveness and there is life. And you can eagerly wait for him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come and rejoice in what Jesus has done and what he is doing, that he will come again. Help us to be a people who are focused not just on today, not just on the cares and the worries of tomorrow, but have an eye focused on eternity where we will rejoice and fellowship and be with God forever. We ask this in his holy name. Amen.